is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. On this episode, it is my honor to talk with Gordon White. He is not only an author, blogger, and podcaster, but he is also a practicing occult magician. Now, this is not my area of expertise, but I respect his ideas and how his ideas about reality sort of tick in his mind. I I really resonate strongly with it. And he has a wonderful website called Rune Soup, and his audio interviews are amazing. They are highly recommended. There will be a link in the show notes. He has one book out titled Starships, and we talk about this during the interview, but we also talk about a lot more. And, and I guess I should also add that Gordon lives in Tasmania. And I think this just might be a first for the Unknown Country site. I don't know if anyone here has ever done an interview with anyone from Tasmania. This conversation was recorded Monday, January 27th, 2020. Please enjoy. Gordon, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Mike. Looking forward to it. Yes, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. We got it seems like we've been trying for months to make this happen, and finally it's happening. Exactly. You know, we get there in the end. All good things. You said, I'm not sure where you said it. I've heard you say this more than once. I'm paraphrasing roughly, and I really like this, what you're trying to say here. You said, Roughly, you said, for more than 30,000 years, humans did not have TV. Instead, we had the night sky. Am I doing that justice? Yeah, it's um, usually, yes, the short answer is yes, but usually how I say it is for um, essentially the first 180,000 years of modern humans, the only thing on television was the night sky. Um, But it's the same idea, and I, I find that really evocative because... All of that time is a time without light pollution beyond, you know, a couple of campfires. And and I know you've um, spent a lot of your um, life in the outdoors. And if you get the night correctly, you can't you can't take your eyes off the sky. It's it's incredible. And and we typically don't have that experience anymore. And just imagine what that does to culture and language and and human consciousness when you do that for almost two hundred thousand years. I agree. And I so I took people out into the mountains. I taught in the mountains. And one of the things that like you take someone in the desert in southern Utah where there is very little light pollution and no humidity and and the sun goes down the first night and you get someone from you know Ohio or something and sees it for the first time like in their first time in their life seeing that you know I've had many people when I lived in Idaho people would come and visit me and say wow it seemed like it was clear and like there's some clouds up there and I'm like um that's the milky way that's there every night yeah <laughs> it's not cloudy <laughs> Yeah, there's something about the desert in particular, right? I mean, Crowley had that in his book of the law. Um, you, you go out uh, in the desert under the night sky, and that's that's an, the essentially a psychedelic encounter with his space goddess, right? Uh, and same thing, the Australian uh, desert, the Red Centre, particularly if you, you do it in an Aboriginal context, uh, you can touch them. It it feels like they are just in front of you, and, and it's it's an astounding experience. One of the uh, astronomy guides we had when I went with, actually Richard Dolan, um, a couple of years ago, was talking about he had a group of Japanese tourists, and several of them, like, panicked. They, they couldn't they couldn't process <laughs> being out under what the, the human sky used to be. 
Oh my God, I I need it. I need it. I mean, I'm up in upstate New York now, and it is just simply doesn't compare. Just humidity and alone is, you know, fogs it out enough. But wow. So in your book, Starships, which came out in 2016, and I'm basing much of this interview on stuff I cherry picked out of that book, uh, that that it's not necessarily the um the ancient aliens version of of craft landing in interacting with our ancient ancestors it's more that they were able to tap into something in order to create these magnificent monuments and structures as well as sort of tap into deeper truths and hidden knowledge let's say yeah so um, Dr. Kripal says something similar to this, right, which is that we have an ontology problem when we look at, broadly speaking, anomalous history, right? Uh, and and that is if we assume materialism is valid, and, and I think it's been doubly and, and resoundingly falsified over the 20th century, um, but if we assume that if we don't do the, the kind of ontological work of unpicking materialism, then when we look at the anomalous or high strange or whatever motifs and and sites in history we kind of can't explain it in any way other than a sort of very sitchin-esque uh, must have been aliens and nuclear powered rocket ships coming down to i don't know mine gold to save their atmosphere or whatever it was and and the trouble with that is that's not correct but the trouble with throwing a baby out with the bathwater is that if you do in fact sit with the story of sort of mankind and the stars across time and space you do find something deeply, deeply compelling about, you know, the story and and, and just the metaphysics of being alive. So that's a sort of, uh, it's almost like it's an ancient aliens book for people who don't like ancient aliens. It's one of the ways I described it when it came out. Uh, and that's looking at the anomalies in history and, and the impact that getting, it's a weird way of saying it, right? But like getting good at the stars uh, has an impact on cultural complexity. I agree. So, Yes, so that would be, you know, the, the same stars that, you know, your great grandfather looked at. You are looking at. Yes, and so there's no there's no evolution of, of the stars. I mean, obviously there is if you talk to, uh, what's Hamlet's Mill that book, but it's very very subtle in, in our life passage here. But the, I guess the stars would almost be a gateway. Yes. Yeah, so the the I I mean the thing about Hamlet's Mill and the sort of idea that all these sites around the world um, encode procession is there's a difference between encoding something and being able to um, discover that the people who were operating in these cultures or these sites had an understanding of it because that's another kind of diminishing or materialist view of the stars right it's like oh therefore all these myths are just retelling procession well that's dumb and boring and who has mythologies that just tell you oh every 72 years it's it, it tips a little bit who builds out an elaborate culture around one of them you know i don't know if you watch uh, what's it called um kimmy schmidt the unbreakable kimmy schmidt but one of the characters in that refers to numbers as the most boring boring of all the shapes and you think that's kind of people who like maths did the maths of the stars and wrote this book like hamlet's mill and the rest of it to say therefore this is all just telling the story of procession it isn't you can see procession in it this comes back to you there's no avoiding doing the philosophical work about what you think is happening in reality and do you think you live in a living cosmos uh, and if you live in a living cosmos then interacting with the stars is interacting with 
non-human persons. It's actually interacting with, and you can take it, I don't like panpsychism, but that appears to be the most palatable non-materialist cosmology at the moment, that or idealism, which essentially says that everything has some form of consciousness. As a result, stars have a form of consciousness, right? So again, if you if you do the work of moving into a metaphysics that allows for these things to, which I think they are, to be true, then you don't need it to be as dull as little green men in rocket ships or um, the entire culture or the entire sort of an entire palace in Cambodia is devoted to, to telling you that procession exists. It's not that at all. It's something much more profound. And it's a thing that happens again, because we've both spent time outdoors under stars. You feel it. You don't even I've, I've done it on psychedelics. I don't know if you have, but you uh, <laughs> I, I will remain silent on that. Right. One for, for the short term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's funny. It's almost like I remember Graham Hancock saying maybe 10 years ago that he would want anyone who wants to hold high office to do 10 sessions of ayahuasca in the jungle. And I like that. And I kind of think the same thing for anyone who wants to do archaeology or astronomy. You want to get a, a heroic mechanodose of mushrooms in the stars in the desert and then go about your job. That's all I ask. <laughs> a, a here, here, I'll, I'll, I'll amend that where I was going to say I was going to be silent. The, the, the statue of limitations is long gone. At this point. <laughs> so uh, I have in the winter cross-country skied into hot pots in Yellowstone. So soaking pots in Yellowstone. Yellowstone National Park, where they got hot water running. So naked in boiling mud under the stars on, I don't know if it was heroic dose, but wow, it, <laughs> it was pretty incredible. So, and this was well before I was into anything sort of spiritual. This was totally like party. So, but wow, it was a mystical, powerful thing that Precisely. I, I, I could I could fill the whole show just talking about the visionary stuff that went down there. So. And, and it seems to be, and this is the weird Crowley thing, right? Um, it seems to be that if you do that, you get a very specific thing. Uh, and, and in Starships, I call it, um, well, I call it a couple of things. But essentially, when you have um, technical redundancy in your star message, right? So the classic example that people refer to, and there's a very, very, very good reasons for it, like Robert Temple's classic from the 70s, The Serious Mystery, right? Which tells the story of the Dogon and their unusual understanding of the Sirius star system. And it's based on some French uh, anthropologists who are in the mid 20s. And the, the attempts to debunk it uh, are not correct. Um, they, they're just things that happen, right? But by the same token, the there are more than one explanation for the Dogon's um, redundant complexity in their star message than for some reason these beings from Sirius came down and told them two things, the weight and velocity of their stars and also the approximate shape of how um, human cells work, both of which you can find in their stories and their depictions, right? Now, in a kind of broadly, let's just call it a remote viewing adjacent model, which is human consciousness when it interacts with things, can get information. That's essentially what remote viewing is saying, right? Like across time and space, the human mind can get information from a place. Now, if you're doing that with the stars, you're going to get stuff. And I use in starships, um, that's the redundant complexity in the message. A, a kind of like West African hunter-gatherer society doesn't need to know um, the weight and velocity of like a three-star system many light years away. It doesn't need to know it. But for some reason, it has that information. And it has that information about the stars that are the cornerstone of their cosmology, which means they're interacting on a consciousness basis with these stars very often. So, of course, the stars are going to talk back to make it sort of glib. Now, so, uh, th this is what I mean by the um, 
the Hamlet's Mill approaches, it's not that they're wrong, it's that they're boring. And and they, they're still coming from a, a materialist cosmology. Whereas if you look at it from an animist one, you start to see that you start to be able to Venn diagram things that we know to be true, like like remote viewing. You start to be able to Venn diagram that with cultures and, and star lore across the world. And, and a much more compelling picture shows up. Funnily enough, almost exactly a year ago, I gave a talk uh, at a UFO event in northern New South Wales, possibly a year to the day. It's pretty close. Uh, and I, it was titled What If We're the Aliens? And because I'm, I am actually an interventionist in the sense that I do not believe – um, life was endogenously created on Earth by lightning hitting some goo or whatever. It's ridiculous. All life comes from life. So I'm much more of the um, directed panspermia model. And if you have one of them and a belief that matter has some sort of interiority in the sense of being an animist or, or an idealist or a panpsychist, then you are actually talking about you are actually finding a way for the creation myths around the world to be a kind of real. And one of the ones that I find the most compelling um, is, well, it's actually several Aboriginal nations, but I'm referring specifically to um, Buran people here, where they believe the stars are the campfires of their ancestors. And I find that unbelievably beautiful because at the time, well, for 50,000 years, sitting out there at your campfire and looking up at your ancestors. And the thing is, it's true. Like, it is literally true. Uh, life comes from there, right? And you do in that kind of very Carl Sagan way when you die and your um, your body dissolves into its constituent parts and you end up powering a star. Like, it, it's the that kind of dull true, but it's it's those are the kind of eerie things that I find beautiful and profound that you can kind of unpack if you step outside materialism and don't go, well, that's weird. How do they know about Sirius? It must be aliens. It, it need not must be aliens. And also, what even is an alien if the stars themselves told the dog on that? And that's kind of the story of starships. And I I was really smitten by that idea because, you know, I'm... So my life changed dramatically in the last 15 years where I started to follow the, the threads that all seem to point to UFO contact. And very quickly, like the definition of UFO contact kind of crumbled, right? It just didn't work. Like it might work for the researcher who confines the stuff in a little box and only pulls on certain threads. But when you're in the midst of it, you realize like it's much, much, much weirder. Like synchronicities alone defy the, I don't know, the metal spaceship model of this thing. There certainly might be metal spaceships involved in the whole mystery, but it's much richer and, and much stranger than that. Oh, totally. Yeah. Here's something I've done and have done it for years. And I'm very cautious with it. I don't take advantage of it. And I, I treat it with some reverence. I will go out into the mountains alone and I will sleep alone and I will lay down and look up at the night sky, the stars, and I will make a little plea or a very formal plea just before going to sleep, just before closing my eyes. And it goes something like this. All right, universe, I am asking for help. I am open and receptive to whatever you have to offer me. Sometimes I will add, I prefer it not be scary, but, but you're smarter than I am. So I'll let you decide. And then I will say something to the effect of, I thank you in advance. Oftentimes I'll have very specific things. Like, um, well, oftentimes it was, I need a sign. Like, I'm, I'm not functioning very well, and I need a sign to know that I'm on the right path. Now, it's not every time that I did this I would get results. But I had such powerful 
results. And I did not look this up in a book. I did. I just did this organically. I just was. I just was in a place of needing. I was really. I was yearning for some answers. And I did this completely organically. Would go off alone. Say this to the stars. And I got some whoppers of confirmation in oftentimes in the form of dreams but often within 24 hours i had i had i was bowled over by the synchronicities that were unfolding before me well totally what was happening what was i doing ah so um i for people who may be unaware i'm a practicing magician uh, practicing ritual magician so i come at it from an animist magic model of the universe right so you certainly didn't read that first of all that's good magic you certainly didn't read it in a book but you need not read it in a book uh, mike because you're an experiencer. So um, if you look at the kind of models of spirit contact that we find in things like the European grimoires and so on, there is an encounter which is typically, in the case of the grimoires, instigated by the magician, right? You do your, you get your circle and your robes and, and blah, 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 blah. And, and you spend a night calling up this thing and you essentially bind it or pact with it or, or what have you. That's the sort of European grimoire version of it. But that model of either you picking a spirit or more commonly a spirit picking you, um, uh, we have frameworks for it in every other culture, everywhere, every when around the world, right? And so I would put it to you that part of the reason why, I mean, that'll work for anyone, but why it works so well for you is that you've had a contact event that means you it's almost like you have the innate capacity to continue that discussion. And that kind of brings it into, I would say, alignment with, we were mentioning Diana Walsh-Basulka beforehand, and even Whitley, especially in his latest book, um, it brings it into that kind of alignment, right? Um, and and that would that's what I was saying. I would recommend anyone do that. And um, if you if you approach the stars with with that kind of humility and reverence, um, you're not doing anything to in I guess in my opinion, you're not doing anything that can maybe backfire. Whereas if you sort of dick about with the grimoires and don't take that seriously, some stuff will backfire. But but that that kind of benign um the stars are however you want to call it, the campfires of our ancestors or or the ultimate great mother or something. If you approach them seriously seriously and with reverence, that will um, people will have versions of it. The other thing that's important, and it's the reason I bring up the grimoires, is most of the time you get in the stories of them that one must have to pick somewhere out in the forest or rent an inn in the middle of nowhere or something away from humans, uh, and that appears to be involved in having in a sort of a having high fidelity spirit contact. So the other part of why you got some not just background low-level synchronicities, which I know is a feature of your life, uh, Mike, but like some stonking ones, right? Um, you did a full ritual. You actually went out to where there aren't that many humans and and you approached it correctly. And arguably, um, you can agree or disagree on this, arguably it was a continuation of a conversation that's sort of been happening over the course of your life. The the conversation would have been unconscious. It would have been buried somewhere. Sure, absolutely. Me. Yeah. So I guess that, you know, so there's these two halves of me, this known half where I, you know, walk around and I, you know, deal with my day-to-day -day life. And then there's this unknown side, seemingly. And I sense that unknown side is there. And I'll get a fleeting glimpse of it rarely. But, you know, that was my, that was my angst, I guess. Yeah, sure. Everything in Western world said, this, this can't happen. But everything in my reality was saying, this is happening. Yeah. Um, 
Well, the good news is they are simply wrong, you know. <laughs> well, I found that out. I found that yeah. out. Well, they're right about some things. I'm really glad that, like, oh. strict materialists, like, made the brakes in my car, you know, so. Sure. Um, I, although, arguably, and this is kind of one of the underlying theses in, in Starships, is that we, we think we have materialism to thank for so much of, you know, the the technological things we enjoy with the modern day, because people think that's science. That's not science. That's technology and industry. And the Industrial Revolution was begun by Anglicans. The, the people who built or began this process were all God-fearing, mostly men, but I was going to say God-fearing men and women. So I, just, I find it really disingenuous when people who don't know anything about science, which tends to be the people talking about it on social media the most, think, oh, well, you have science to thank for that. I'm like, no, I don't. I have technology to thank for that. And since you brought it up, uh, you know, computing and so on, um, quantum theory invented by Vedantists. So all the kind of cornerstones of real big change in, in I guess, Western complexity. We we think it's it's non magical for to use my terms, right? Very often it isn't. <laughs> Very often it's people, the people who discover LSD, the people who discover um, quantum theory. There there is high strangeness in their childhood. There is high strangeness associated with these events. And the kind of broad point of why humans should interact with the stars that we get in starships is if you get good at that, you have, for better and for worse, an increase in um, technological complexity in your culture. And that is evidenced you know, with the pyramids, that's uh, evidence with the space program, the origins of which, which are associated with all manner of these these strange events. So it's kind of finding a language halfway between, you know, Western English uh, and 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 talking in a way that allows it to see other cultures and, and other modes of being, particularly animist ones, eye to eye. And it's true. Like I, I'm I'm grateful for technological complexity as well. Very often, has nothing to do with materialist science. Very good. We will need to take our very first break. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am speaking with Gordon White about his research, his practices, and the crossover between what he does and what, let's say, the UFO experiencer might be going through. Here, I have a funny story to tell you. Uh, this is going back a decade or so ago, and I was I was seeing a pattern in people who were contacting me, and they were saying that they were yearning and seeking and were sort of angst-ridden with this uh, urgency, this yearning. And then they would have a powerful synchronicity, or then they would have a UFO experience, or quite often they would see an owl. Now, I was pretty loose with the, you know, I played that. I kind of maybe maybe played it up a little too much and someone got a hold of me and and said like you're driving me crazy you, you got to back off like you're not being scientific and i thought for a second and i said what do i care i'm not a scientist which i thought was a pretty good comeback so anyway this guy the guy who contacted me the reader of the blog it was bugging him and his argument was everybody is yearning all the time which is a fair thing to say. There's a yearning, but there's a triangulation of actually reaching out to someone. Like that, that is a fair thing to say. But so, for instance, um, my website RuneSoup has a premium member component to it, and we do a fortnightly Q and A and whatever. And there's a similar triangulation that happens there, where people will email me about a thing, and, and it's usually yearning related. You know, we're talking about magic and anthropology and so on. Uh, and then they'll email me later and say the act of emailing me 
did a thing in their lives. And it's not that I have, well, I actually do have magical powers, but you know what I mean? It's not like I caused that. Um, it was the act of yearning and, and doing a thing. So pe- reaching out to you, I would surmise, is the additional triangulation. Like we do ritual. Humans do ritual. Like in the book, I call it as homo ritualis. Like that's our defining feature and, and we can't not do it. And And arguably, experiencing a yearning and then taking action towards or because of it is is you doing that ritual interaction with the universe. So emailing Mike will probably, is it as same for Gordon because of the nature of what you're emailing about, will probably kick off something. Uh, well, don't be surprised if it um, lands you in a sinkhole. What has been happening to me is that I will do uh, an interview, oftentimes a podcast, where either I will be hosting it or I will be the guest. And the person on the other end of the interview will see an owl within minutes of hanging up with me. Uh, it happened one time to a host named Mel Fabregas. He does a podcast called Veritas. He did an interview with me on where I spoke about the owl book, my first owl book. And as he left his recording studio, which is outside of his house, he was walking to his car, an owl swooped over in front of him. He said it had never, ever happened to him in his life before. It happened minutes after talking with me. This has, this has become normal. Yeah. I still, I'm, I'm used to it at this point, but I still marvel at the power of it. No, absolutely. And, and long may that marvel continue. Um, it, it's sort of, yeah, I, I, when I, I talk to a lot of uh, practicing magicians as part of the podcast as well, right? And uh, and chatting to them afterwards or beforehand, even people with many decades experience, um, when it works, it still catches their breath. It's still like, this is, you know, and I, I love that. I think it's, it's that there's something about synchronicity that is the universe recognizing you, recognizing it. And, and it's a, even when it's eerie, it's still almost a good feeling. It's a remarkable thing. And, and um, I mean, I think some synchronicities can be a little distracting or let's say um, I've had too many and it has impacted my life. I was not at peace. I was having so many synchronicities. Do you know um, uh, Alan Abadassa Green? I know who you mean. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So he, he, uh, he, he treats synchronicity like a compass. So if you're out on the ocean on a cloudy day, you have no sense of direction, right? Some people will say a synchronicity is a signpost along the path. And he takes it a little deeper than that, where it's like, if you're on the ocean on a cloudy day, you have to have a compass to know your direction. So he says that is for him, that's synchronicity. It's his compass in that, that world without features. And I really tried to live my life for the last decade or so, trusting synchronicities and letting them dictate the path I'm on. Um, it, and it's, let me say, it's been remarkable. It's been rewarding in every way except financial. <laughs> I am so blessed to have the, the people I've contacted and the people who I've befriended doing this work. Yeah. Um, I think I think I would be mostly in agreement with that. The trouble, not, I think I'm mostly in agreement with that. Uh, I, we're in this state where because of what Alfred Whitehead would call our last three provincial centuries, right, which is the sort of Cartesian, I call it the Cartesian head drama, but the sort of split into dualism and the diminishment of the imaginal and, and then eventually it's evaporation and to the point where consciousness isn't even real. It's just idiotic, right? And, um, and it's, a, it's a head trauma uh, and we, it will take us centuries to come out of it. But everywhere else, um, if you go to New Guinea or if you go to like the Shipibo areas of Peru or wherever you want, right, um, there are places that haven't lost 
the um, capacity to continue that discussion or, or, or speak that language in a way, because it, it's sort of at the moment, synchronicity is baby talk. Like we don't have uh, shamanic institutions in the, in the way that uh, other cultures might. Uh, and, and so that's why I'm in broad agreement. The trouble is the spirit world is not one thing. So you can actually be even accidentally um, led down a garden path, quite literally, um, by by following synchronicities, because it depends who's or what attention you've attracted. Um, but like broadly speaking, especially as I think we intuit, and we had this discussion the first um, before the first break. I think we intuit ritual, and so in Alan's case, um, because he takes synchronicity seriously and he has a framework of this boat and and the, and the compass and so on to think with it. I think that's that might actually keep him literally uh, on course uh, because otherwise, ju- just following along the funny things that happen, like the, the owl, I find deeply compelling because, as you know better than most, uh, its archetypal resonance is um, ambivalent in the original sense of that term of meaning um, bad as well as good. Like it is a um, it is a troublesome form and is most often, we think of it as wisdom, it's most often around the world associated with misfortune or eerie visitations at the at the edge of civilization, going back to the Bernie Relief, right, where you have weird, creepy desert owls. So that's synchronicity for me. Synchronicity or the spirit world is uh, is a world. It's it's not a one person. And, and that's the kind of thing that we, in Western culture, kind of recovering from the head trauma of materialism. We don't have those skills yet, so we're probably going to get we're probably going to be led down the garden path once or twice. And I have been led down the garden yeah. path, and it's <laughs> and you get a little lost, and it's yeah. So you're trying to trust this magical experience, and and uh, yeah. I, so I know just where you're coming from. Hey, let's take our second and final break for free listeners. You will hear a few commercials for paying members. We will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am with my guest, Gordon White, and we are talking about the big mysteries, the big, big mysteries that 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 all of us are wrestling with. Now, here, before we get started, I'm just going to ask you for some definitions. These are, these are words that I struggle with because they're kind of open-ended. A lot of people have a lot of diff- different definitions. How would you define shaman? Uh, I'm using the kind of contemporary... I guess post Michael Hanna term because it's a good shorthand and actually on the on the blog and in, in many of the member courses we unpick that that is if you don't sit with its um, westernizing shortcomings you can accidentally tip into racism and sort of tip into this idea that all non-western cultures are, are similar in that kind of like a universal um, tribalism way but um, so shaman officially is is a word that's that relates to a Siberian intermediary between the spirit world and a tribe. But I use shaman because I call shamanism extra dimensional diplomacy. Uh, and, and that's the job of a shaman is to make sure that the bad spirits stay away and the good spirits hang out and are happy. And it's a it's a challenging job. But I, I do a lot of work with um, people who are either Peruvian shamans themselves or trained with them. And it was actually quite recently on an ayahuasca retreat. And it's really interesting to see that in action where they're essentially policing the bounds of the ritual area over the over the over the course of the evening because calling in certain spirits attracts different ones. And it is, this is what I mean. Like we don't have that anymore. We sort of used to have it um, even under high middle age Christianity. We sort of used to have the capacity, various saints and various priests and nuns and, and so on 
we, we described it differently, but we had people available to us who could do that extra dimensional diplomacy and we lost it over 300 years and we're just baby stepping our way through it so that's my definition of shamanism extra dimensional diplomacy very good very good um now i'm taking a couple steps back and there's like i would say there's shaman-like practices you know you don't have to be a full-on shaman yes i i did a second book my second book was these stories that um th th one of the problems with these contact events is that the stories are chaotic right they don't have a nice linear form they're they're messy there's weirdness on top of weirdness there's irrational stuff going on so i was trying to explore that so i, I tried to tell people stories as thoroughly as i could in completing this book i was like wait a minute every single not quite every single one every single person but most of the people involved were let's say doing shaman-like work now, most of them weren't full-on shamans. A, a couple of them were, were outright shamans, but most of them weren't. But the majority of the people had some form of Reiki training, whether they were Reiki masters. Many of the people were psychic and were doing um, psychic work with people, helping people. One guy was a straight-up nurse at a hospital. He was helping people. So there's this healing aspect so I've, I, I danced around a little bit and I, I kind of, as a little thought experiment, just kind of wondered, you know, are the UFO contact events, I'll anthropomorphize this in all the worst ways, but, you know, where the, where the occupants of the flying saucer looking through their little telescope at Earth and saying, ooh, Earth is in trouble. They're not going to give us new politicians. It seems like they're planting the seeds at a grassroots level for people to do healing work. And that's what I'm sensing in in the in many of the people who have had these contact experiences. I like it. Um, I would re-describe it because I am an animist, but also I'm very interested in in anthropology. About thirty years ago now, but uh, about thirty years ago, literally had skeletons in its cupboard. Right, like this is the the high racist art of the 19th century to sort of travel around the world measuring the skull shapes of brown people's heads and saying and that's why you're dumber than us and, and whatever so um, as a result anthropology is further ahead in the decolonial or post-colonial journey than most other academic disciplines if not all of them and animism is one of the things they've looked at again because the term was originally racist invented by this guy Tyler who decided that indigenous people couldn't tell the difference between dreams and reality which is so stupid because actually that's what our dualism does like we we are the ones who have got dreaming wrong but one of the ways to think with animism uh is to to call it right relations um and and to be in right relations with humans and and more than humans and so uh, this kind of like adding extra healers to the planet the other way of looking at that is that this is literally how it's always happened so that a, a shaman he or she gets pinged let's just use the global term shaman like extra dimensional diplomacy healer type in other cultures, when that happens to you, if you have an ex what we would consider an experience or event or, or what have you as a child, there is a way that you and the spirits um, become a thing that allows for the mutual flourishing of the spirits and the tribe and the local biosphere and so on. So the, the, the contact event begins the process of turning you into this extra dimensional healer. And we don't 
we don't have the shamanic institutions to get people in a, the healthiest way possible along that route. So instead, experiences kind of careen through life um, and do inevitably end up in a thing that looks weirdly like it because that's essentially what the spirit world wants, which is one way of looking at it, right? And the other side of that, I think a lot of the calamity associated with it is, again, because we in our culture, we don't have the language for it. But if you go against what... Um, the spirit world is requesting of you, uh, it collapses your life and people die. Like uh, pity the person that actually gets a shamanic calling because that's it. You, you don't get to be a fireman. <laughs> you get to be a shaman. And, uh, and, and I think whatever we need next in our kind of cultural journey towards healing, which is urgent given the ecological impact we're having on the planet, the, the the most immediate form of medicine that I would like us to drink um, comes from cultures that are, that still have uh, animist cosmologies. I think that's we, where we need to look first. And uh, that's so what you just said, I'm in full agreement with. But from an animist perspective, it looks like experiences are people who are being called to hold space for right relations. And, and we end up having to intuit it rather than have the structures that allow that to happen. As I work my way through this stuff you know like i'm the the books are all like thought experiments in progress and and i am bumping into the shaman thing all the time and partially that's because you know one of the threads i'm pulling on is this owl thing so the owl and shaman seem to be interlinked uh stanislav grof you know made this point where he would have these these uh they would do holotrophic breathing and and for those of folks who don't know when lsd was uh, made illegal uh stanislav grof had to use a different technique to create an altered state of reality so he would have um holotrophic breathing which is a, just a, a breathing technique that can induce a sort of psychedelic experience and after these clinics people would see owls they would find owls on the side of the road they would find owl feathers on the trail they would have owl experiences. And he was aware of this and has, speaks about it. And that's what I'm also finding with people who are doing here. I'm going to share one little story. This is a really, I, I don't have permission to share this one. So I'm going to cautiously tell it without giving too much away. Young boy living on an Indian reservation in America had a kite as a boy, a little boy. And so he, so he contacts me and tells me this story. He's flying the kite and it's a really good kite. He's got this special ball of string that he can wind up and wind back in really well. And then there's a big gust of wind and the kite flies away and it drags the ball of string up and it goes off into the forest and he sees kind of where it goes. So the next day, him and a friend, they're, they're like 10 years old, 12 years old. They go into the forest and they're like, we got to find the kite. It's got to be out here somewhere. So they look up in a tree and there's a kite. They thought they found it. It's up in this tree. So they walk to the base of the tree there was an owl at the base of the tree, but the owl is all wrapped up in the boy's string. So the, the owl is like tied up in the string. They ended up going back and getting some adults to help them, and they just took some scissors and freed this owl. I heard the story. My very first question was, he's an adult now. I said, are you a shaman? And he very cautiously implied yes. He was very wise about it, he, but he basically implied that he was doing shamanic work. Now, the, the, the symbolism and the sort of elusive poetry in that story, here's a boy that loses a kite, 
gets dragged off by a gust of wind, and the string entangles an owl. He goes in and finds the owl and rescues it. I, I'm, I'm intuiting that story on such a heartfelt level rather than an intellectual level. But that story was powerful for me. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So, I mean, how, you know, how do you unpack that? You know, how do you make sense of that story? I think it's like a, I think, so my sense, here's how I will say it. We are confronted with myths in the making all the time if we're, if we're open to it. Yeah. Um, what I invariably do when it, because we were talking about um, during one of the breaks, how we, one would define archetypal, right? Because I did refer to the owl um, as an archetype is it's useful. One of the ways that kind of like the spirit world came back to save us in the early 20th century was with Jung. And the trouble with defining things like uh, archetypes and synchronicities and the collective unconscious and so on is that Jung kept his most delicious, crazy wizardry to himself until long after his death in the form of the Red Book. And it took decades for it to come out. And in the meantime, here is like smaller minds, which is, I mean, it's one of the great minds of the millennium, right? Um, so I'm not being insulting to the to the founding members of various depth psychology here, but they are lesser minds compared to a towering intellect like that. Um, trying to make it acceptable to materialist culture and to science it up and, and to dress like a big boy and a big girl. And so the definitions that come out of psychology are kind of crap for what these things are. But And, and one of the things we can do if we're looking to do, I would say, um, egalitarian comparison across cultures is to make the statement that the human imagination is identical to the spirit world. So that's actually a really good first step to understanding a majority of, say, Aboriginal cultures' notions of dreaming um, and and the, the role and function of the dream time and how essentially everything that exists has a dreaming, which means its physical extension that we can see is this sort of weird extra-dimensional tip of, of an eternal process. So that one owl is all owls, in, in both in the imagination and are depicted um, on, on cave art and in photographs and everything. It is actually, it is all part of owl dreaming. And once you can do that, um, it, it sort of weaponizes all those amazing, in, in a benign or useful way, weaponizes all those amazing psychological techniques like dream journaling and noticing synchronicities and taking that seriously, what um, what some type psychologists would call turning a friendly face to the unconscious. And as soon as you do that, the world responds and you end up with a, you end up living in that animate or, or living universe. So an encounter with an owl like that, um, it begs the question when you go to interpret it of like, well, what do you think reality is? You can't not. These, it, it, I had this, had this conversation with Richard Dolan as well. You can't not engage with this without asking. You can't just say, what do you think a UFO is? It's, it's like, what do you think reality is? <laughs> if you ask that question, you have to answer the other bit. And so that does not. And, and what you have when you consider the imaginal and the dreamscape to be identical to the spirit world is you live in a narrativizing universe. So it, it's almost the story of following a kite and freeing an owl if you were to write that in a novel you would probably change it because it's like well that's a bit on the nose that just seems too obvious doesn't it so it's one of those things that's surprising and not surprising uh, about living in a universe that's invested with with story and and magic frankly wow okay i i have my next question which you almost answered you're doing this over and over again you're answering my questions before i ask <laughs> them so i'll one more definition i want to hear it from you what is your definition of the word archetype well, so I do actually think the human imagination is identical to the spirit world. Um, I think that's a really useful 
almost like first principle to to do work like that we do. Consequently, um, the archetype is is a shape or a pattern in it that has its own personhood. The definition of animism that I like is extending personhood beyond the human. Now, that kind of sounds silly until you realize that uh, for some reason, Northwest European cultures um, think that the only things that can be persons are humans. And it's the only culture that ever did that. Um, otherwise, like in uh, Maori cultures at the moment have enshrined legal personhood status for rivers. And then it's a much better way of ensuring right relations, ecologically speaking. So, if you think the imaginal is identical to the spirit world, then it begs the question of what are the archetypes? Are you dealing with major spirits and, and entities that exist in reality? And I think that's where Jung was was getting to with the sort of level of the collective unconscious. If you actually sit with what he said and not how it's been dully redescribed by, you know, practicing psychologists today, he basically says that your dreaming mind is an interface to all of reality. And in there, there are things moving that are so big that they actually create like cart ruts in the cosmos, because that was sort of what the archetypes were. They're the, the imprints in the collective unconscious of these deep patterns that originated in the, in the universe. So an archetype is, funnily enough, you don't find animist cultures don't really care for gods um, they're much more interested in spirits and ancestors and so on and the archetype is a really good word if you can haunt which is what i call it if you can haunt jungian definitions an archetype is a god or a spirit it's, it's however you want to just define a thing that like the rest of us exists primarily in the imaginal but its movements through physically observed reality create these kind of patterns and um, and that's i think the way to that's the way to look at it Okay, good. I, I like that. I really like that. That's a little different than I have been framing archetype for myself. And and I struggle with this one. I, I give talks and stuff like that. And the joke I make is like, you know, like uh, philosophy students have been arguing over what the word archetype means, you know, in dorm rooms all the time, you know. So this is one of those words that's that's difficult to wrap your mind around. But you did a beautiful job there. When researching my first book, I talked with a woman. Her name is Jacqueline Smith. She's a wonderful woman, and she has had both UFO contact experiences as well as a near-death experience. And she is now channeling. So she channeled. She wrote a book where she channeled animals. And she tells this wonderful story walking through the woods and seeing an owl. And she basically said, thank you for presenting yourself to me. You know, what can you tell me? And then she downloaded this, like, rich it's a little dense. It's almost hard to read, but this beautiful thing, it was very poetic about what the owl spirit was. And I was cautious. I said, oh, you, you, you channeled that owl. And she said, no, I channeled the owl spirit, which is very much what you were saying just earlier. Like, yes, it wasn't just one owl wrapped up in a kite string. It was all owls. Yeah. And she said it very clearly like that. So I asked her, so we were talking on the phone and she's a channel. And I was like, and I basically said, hey, listen, if you see that owl again. You ask for me, what is up with all the owls? Like, I got to know because I'm struggling with this. And she started talking and she's all of a sudden she's very speaking very haltingly and she speaks very low. And she actually even said under her breath, I have it recorded. She goes, words, words. She's like basically articulating that this isn't going to work to just to talk in words. So I said, you know, what do the owls mean? And so I'm going to read her reply. This is, I transcribed her reply. I'm so glad I recorded this conversation. She said, so a lot of people dismiss owls as a screen memory. She said, yes. Yes, an owl can also be a screen memory. 
So there is not just one function. They have multiple functions for the image of the owl and how people think about owls. And another thing, they are saying that they are initiators. But this is an initiation of going aboard a craft. So I look at it in that sense. They are using the owls symbolically because the owl is still the owl frequency to mirror to us in an archetypal sense because humans think of owls in a certain way, right? There is an archetypal image that is mirrored to humans. And this goes in on a subconscious level and connects with the human's genetic memory bank. Because humans think in symbols, they are touching us on that level. And that goes back to the very beginning of humankind and how we see owls. Not only here, but in soul connections in other star systems. And when she said that, every puzzle piece in the mystery that I had been struggling with just clicked together. It was like, oh, like I was too literal on the owl. And taking that step back and seeing it as the archetype, you know, seeing all owls, it like cleaned up the disparate puzzle pieces on the table I was trying to make sense of. And they just felt like they all just went click and just fit together perfectly. So that was, that was a UFO experiencer channeling an owl, seemingly, or an owl spirit, let's say, answering the question I was desperate to have an answer to. It was a, such a beautiful, powerful moment for me. Mm, it's good. It's real good. Did I tell you my owl story when you were on my show? No, you may have. I, I get a lot of owl stories, but let's yeah, hear it. Yeah, you do. <laughs> well, it's just something she resonated with there when she's channeling owl and it, it's reference of we give humans craft experiences. So the the screen memory for humans is associated with crafts. My, I mean, I've seen a bunch of owls, but the biggest one for me, when my grandfather died and I would have been about 17, um, I got his car because I was 17 <laughs> and I had my pee plates, right? And so one evening I was leaving my house in my grandfather's craft and uh, I pulled up and was we lived on a hill. So it was sort of, you had to drive up the hill to get back down it. And I got halfway up the hill and I've never seen this before or since in the childhood street that I grew up in. There was an owl sitting in the middle of the road that didn't move. I had to stop my grandfather's craft and it looked at me. And you know the encounters. This is what I mean by we need to do something. We need to have a language that and it fails in, in English in, in materialism. But we need to have a language that says um, that was significant. When, a, when you encounter a thing, it's that synchronicity feel right. When you encounter something, you'll see a bird in the sky, not significant, but you'll see a bird in the sky and it feels significant and you feel it in your bones. And that was one of those, right? That was a, and it just looked at me and I had the sense of, you know, owls are a, a good archetype, let's just say, has a gravimetric effect on space time so that the, the presence of the owl can kind of like warp reality the same thing with you know major archetypes like the magician or trickster or, or so on so the owl is it it almost like is a bowling ball and a trampoline where it's historically associated with misfortune but but between worlds and death and and so on and from what i heard from your description of the channeling there is the association of the owl and the craft i was in my dead grandfather's craft when i had my owl encounter right and it was one of those moments of we the owl and i locked eyes for long enough that it was a thing and then off it flew and off i went yes yes so what was going on in your life leading up to this event? Well, so I'd sort of begun practicing magic in earnest as a teenager. So my first thought 
because it didn't feel like it at the time was really kind of like terrible neo-pagan Wiccan stuff about it must be some sort of good wisdom omen. Uh, and then I, I cracked some books and, and thought not. But it was um, it was a threshold of adulthood moment because it was sort of odd to start with driving my grandfather's car, as you might expect, because it's a weird combination of moving into adulthood, but adulthood ends in death. So I was um, what was occupying my mind at the time was that was the, the, one of the first moments as you know as an adolescent you don't tend to think too often about death but um it was a moment of contemplating mortality and its implications in magic so it was just the right time like the encounter didn't this is the thing that i think people because we don't have the language for it if we have an encounter with a spirit or an archetype or whatever you want to call it we experience and it's wrong to do so but westerners experience things in a linear way or a sequential way as if oh this happened therefore that in this really mechanistic positivist modernist way and that's not the language of dream that's not the language of of archetypes right like it's a lot of things at once and the, and it's it's phenomenological it's the experience in its non-linear um anarchy uh, that is primal it's the first thing and then it's subsequent multiple interpretations and i actually think that's a really good way of defining whether you've encountered something archetypal or not is um the feeling is primal it's it, it, there's primacy for the feeling and then it unpacks in a multi-narrative way and continues to do so over time. And that, again, if you if you pick animist cultures, they will have the language for that. They will have the language for um, kangaroo has law, like it it it, it has a, a sort of multi-dimensional impact that you can learn from and participate in in an encounter. And that's what I mean. Like there's something we've everyone kind of feels it in the West. We we know that we used to know this stuff. Like it feels like it's right there. Like we used to know this stuff. And uh, and one of the things that intellectually interests me is to find other cultures and peoples that maybe are slight, not complete, but maybe are slightly better at it than we are. Okay. I'm now I'm, we, we've, we've only got a few minutes left and I didn't want to drag us down this owl thing, but the, the story you told of the owl on the road. I'm getting that in my email inbox three times a week. Pretty much the same story you just told. And people are searching for those words. They're astonishing. We locked eyes. The hair on the back of my neck rose up. So I'm saying, I'm arguing that confronting the owl is a human experience that we have had throughout all time. Sure. I am certain people like stepped out of the cave at a pivotal point in their life saw an owl, locked eyes, and had a powerful spiritual experience. These experiences are still going on. We no longer have the vocabulary to, to deal with this. We no longer have someone at the edge of the village that can answer these questions. They're turning to me. I don't have the answers. What I can say is, for me, that owl has become a totem of a challenge. Oh, I like that. It's not a, it's not a light and fluffy totem. God, no. I mean, I've had people who've had owl sightings just before being diagnosed with cancer. They end, they end up beating the cancer, but it, um, it punctuated a, a point in their life. And I'm being very literal now. I'm going in linear. I'm not in dream time. But it punctuated a point in their life where they were going to be confronted with a, with a challenge. Doesn't make a challenge not bad. It can be very difficult, but it's not necessarily bad. Have you ever been to see the Burnley Relief or the um, or otherwise called the Queen of Heaven fresco in the British Museum? 
Oh, yes. I, I got into London. I tell you what, the, I was staying at the Athens Hotel. How's that? There you go. And I walked out of the Athens Hotel, which has got all kinds of it's imbued with its own kind of resonance there, and then walked to the British Museum. And I I made a beeline to that thing. I had people say, take a picture of me with this in front of me. Like, I wasn't going to take a selfie with it. It's very small. Oh, yeah. Now, so here I'm an artist. And so this is what I took away from that. Like, like someone made a very curvy woman. I mean, it is a feminine form. Like she's she likes a Barbie doll proportions. And but the eyes on that that relief. And I sense this. I'm intuiting this just from my own stuff where the artisan probably wanted to do one type of eye. And then it never quite worked out. And then it felt like they just took their little their little scribe or whatever they're using to to mold the terracotta and they just poked it in for like two eye plops. It was like I sensed the frustration, like, oh, they wanted to do one thing. I mean that the owl's eyes are beautiful, the 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 talons are beautiful. There's these little feathers on the owl uh, legs that come out from under her gown. But the two eyes just look like like someone jabbed a pencil for one, two eyes. So that was my sense when I looked at it. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time with it. I actually, I I wrote large parts of starships directly underneath it um, without kind of realizing, because that's where the members room is. And I would sit at the end (laughs) that's directly underneath it in the back of the British Museum. But I would spend a lot of time looking at it. And um, they're desert owls, right? And so you have this, as you say, um, curvy but um, very anthropic woman. And and the thing about the desert in um, Babylonian and Egyptian cultures is that it is not a human-friendly realm. I mean, it isn't a human-friendly realm, right? But again, kind of coming back to the Crowley and the stars thing, the desert is... I like it that you know, it's a totem of, of a challenge for you because a, a desert owl, an animal that flies through the desert night sky... Is it that and and with all its people have thought is this Ishtar? It might be. People think it's a, um, a miscarriage demon, which it also may be because it is not pleasant, um, and it is telling you something very, very, very confronting about uh, encounters with the spirit world. And it's a sort of and and it is. I hate using the word liminal because it's so overused, but it is that liminal or borderland story of of, of a desert owl is really scary. A desert owl because if you witness them. You are out in the middle of the desert, which isn't friendly to humans, but for some reason, desert and night sky and and all of this kind of experience stuff goes together. And in the middle, you have this alluring but also not human draw to what, like, so the, there is a sexual invitation towards danger. I think it's magnificent. I, I think of all depictions of owls in in the world, um, and why I find that fascinating is. Obviously, Athena, speaking of Athens, that's, that was a really fun place for you to stay, as the founding goddess of Athens. And Athens is archetypal as well as real. So Athens is the origin of civilization for um, the Greek world, as uh, mythologically speaking. And what's so interesting about things like the owl and the owl at the desert is I gave a talk, speaking of London, called Campfire's Edge a few years ago, where it's a continuation of the Starship's hypothesis that civilization exists via interaction inspiration that we get from the spirit world and that's not necessarily good like we don't know why they're giving us those technologies and that and i mean cultural technologies i don't just mean like spaceships or whatever right Uh, and that's not um and the uneasiness of that is found in cultures around the world that what it's the thing that separates humans and the ambivalence of the civilizing powers is there in the in the owl it's like we are we offer you we offer you 
all of these things like cities and, and so on. But look at what we're doing with the planet because of the stuff that we've learned, right? It's really, really interesting. And there's nothing that I think that I've seen, although you would know better, of course. I think that's the best um, depiction of an owl that isn't an actual owl on the planet because it has all of that, that density of of um, meaning and, and terror and opportunity and compulsion that, that is associated with the owl archetype. I love it. I think it's my favorite thing in the British Museum. If you look at the Shroud of Turin, there's burn marks on the Shroud of Turin. It was burned in like the 1400s or something like that. There was a fire in a church and some silver melted and it made these, and it was all folded up. So you unfold it and the burns are like, and make this symmetrical pattern. <clears throat> right and left of the Christ image is, it is not hidden. There are two owls. One is very clear and one is not. And they are essentially in the same position as the owls on the side of, you know, whoever you want to call it, Ishtar, in the, the Bernie relief. So Jesus has two owl guardians, right and left. And let me tell you, those, it is, one of them clearly is a barn owl. Awesome. And it is gentle. It has a gentle presence. I am, I am not reading into this. I think anyone would say the same. It is not a sinister owl. You know, and there's some lore that says the devil himself started the fire that melted the silver that put the stains in the Bernie, or excuse me, that put the stains in the uh, uh, Shroud of Turin. So these mythological images are, I'm going to say this again, they are around us all the time if we have eyes to see. Absolutely. And and a, a big step. Absolutely. It's just, that's really well said. Um, really well said, Mike. And and I guess if as, as we come towards the end of the show, for people who are listening, like, stand in your phenomenological truth. Um, we, we soft pedal it and we, we apologize as we describe those encounters. But and, and the, the dumb thing is they're more real than real. And more and more people, I think, today, it's really interesting, right? So I, there's something's happened in the last decade where the people who, if you're at a dinner party and someone expresses a very kind of like guardian reading, reading materialist perspective, everyone else kind of looks at them like they said something a little bit racist. Like materialism is over and and, and it, you feel that culturally. And for people who are listening to this, they're obviously interested in this kind of stuff. Stop soft peddling your experiences just 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 say them because i'm here to tell you professionally they're real i don't know what they are <laughs> stop soft peddling and now is the time to be like i it's not even like i and it felt so weird i was you know is that even possible i'm like yes just say i um the owl in the shroud of turin told me something because it did like that's we, we have the language to do that and, and and it's a different kind of completely real and true right animism one of the defining characteristics of it is no data are irrelevant so if you're on if you're on a, a hunting party and you have an unusual dream you wake up you're kind of obliged to tell it to the rest of the hunting party uh, and and they will make of it as a group what they will um but no data are irrelevant in the human experience of the cosmos. So when you look at a picture and you hear or see something, that's actually happening. It's our model of mind that tells us, oh, I'm inventing that because there's, you know, chemicals firing in the goo inside my skull. That's stupid. That's stupid and falsified, right? Everyone else in the world, everywhere, every when will take it as data, as a kind of real. And one of the things that I'm, I'm so bullish about is to people people just say it tell them i mean i 
most people's dreams are kind of boring, but like if you have a big thing that happens, say it is a thing that happened to you because it did. And and I, I really love hearing your owl stories because I get like, no, just this is good. Keep talking about it like it's real because it is. We could go on for hours and hours and hours. I, here, let me, people will ask me like, you know, like where well, you're at this place now, you've been through all this stuff and you wrote these books and you've talked to all these people and you've sort of coalesced all this information or tried to anyway, you know, what, what's, how's it, what's, what's happened? How's it changed? And when I say, I now live in a magical universe. Yep. That's the prize at the end. That is that and the, the surety that life continues in some form after death. You get two, like in many, that's the great prize. But yes, you live in a magical universe until you die. And that's mostly good. Sometimes it isn't. <laughs> but that's mostly good. Gordon, thank you so much. This has been a delight. Oh, it has. It has indeed. Thank you very much for inviting me. Hey, how do people get in touch with you? Um, I'm on, well, runesoup.com is the weekly podcast and, and the blog and, and all the rest of it. So you can find it all there. And, and I'm reasonably active on Twitter for my sins. So it's Gordon underscore White uh, on Twitter. Thank you so much. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. Uh, this turned out to be a really fun interview. And right when we started, I mentioned that we had been trying to connect for some months. And what, what was happening is we would make a date, and, and it was actually me. I would somehow mess up. I would screw up the time difference between me and Tasmania, which is almost on the exact opposite side of the globe. And there was another time where I just I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to talk with him, and I, and I had to cancel the interview because I really wanted to be in top form for this episode. Gordon can take a question and really run with it, and I wanted to be able to keep up. And you probably heard me working really hard to keep up a few times there in the interview. Also, when I tried to read the excerpt of Jacqueline Smith's channeled bit from The Owl Spirit, I was, I was really mumbling and I was stammering a lot and I read it really poorly. So during the editing, I did a nice clean rereading of it, and you might have heard a little change in the tone for that one little bit. Now, at the end of the formal interview, we both said goodbye, but we just stayed on the line and we kept on talking. We had a really great conversation. It went on for about 20 minutes, and there was one segment where we were chatting, and I, I said it aloud. I said, this would be a really good fit. For, for the episode. And the recorder was running, and I said that to Gordon, and he said, yeah, go with it. It'd be great. So that's what I'm going to play next. It's about five minutes long, and it was, a, it was a conversation, a much more informal conversation, between Gordon and I after we had completed the actual interview. And right at the beginning, I'm talking about some events in my life in 1993, and I say... And it might sound a little bit casual, but I say that I had just had a nervous breakdown. And that line might seem a little out of place. In these shows and my personal writing, I have been very clear about my history of clinical depression. So it feels like it's a part of who I am. And I'm comfortable talking about it. So, so I just wanted to give you a heads up. Okay, here's the extra clip of the dialogue. Please enjoy. Uh, 
long, long, long before I even started, I guess it had been 2000 and, excuse me, 1994, the summer of 1994, I was living in, no, the summer of 1993. I was living in New York City. I had just gotten over a horrendous nervous breakdown and I was broke and I, 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 moved in with my old college roommate and I lived in his apartment for the summer and took advertising work, which I hate and made enough money to like move back out West and be a ski bum, which is all I wanted to do. So that summer I was rock climbing at this area North of New York. And so I, I remember that night I was, it was like Friday night and I was like, Oh, oh this is tense. I've got to get, I got to get in the car. I got to drive to sleep under the stars. I got to get in the car and I got to drive. There's a spot that I had, which is about 90 minutes North of New York in this beautiful spot called the Schwangunk mountains. It's in New Paltz, New York. And I would sleep on top of this big um, quartzite cliff system. And I'm driving along. I was actually reading uh, the trilogy um, by Vallée's, Jacques Vallée's trilogy that came out in the late 80s at that point. So I was definitely had a big interest in UFOs and such. But And I was driving and I was like, why am I like, like leaving the house at 1130 at night, the apartment, driving through the traffic is minimal at this point on a Saturday night. So it's pretty easy driving. It's about a 90-minute drive. And as I'm like in New York City traffic on the FDR, I, I literally say out loud, like, wow, they're pushing really hard tonight. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know where that came from at all. So I go to the spot. Nothing happened. Nothing magical happened. I had a lovely night out. And the next day, I had a beautiful day climbing. But years later, I hadn't been to the area in a long time. I had a friend in New York City. I was visiting the city. So let's, let's go up to the climbing. Let's go climbing. I'm like, great. So we went to the spot. We get to see so you top out on this cliff system. And then there's this beautiful walk down you do. And I'm like, listen, I'm a, I want to see if I can find my old sleeping spot. I slept there all the time under the stars. Now, this is like a plateau of milky white granite. It's interspersed with trees. It's gorgeous. Just as pretty as anything in, in the East Coast. And... There's only one spot, like the, the, the stone is lumpy. It'd be really hard to like find a spot to lay down. But there was one spot that was just a rectangle of level stone that was exactly the size of my sleeping pad. And I walked right up to it and someone in red spray paint had painted a pentagram in a circle on that spot. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. That's, uh... So one of the things that has been occupying my mind the last five or six years or so is essentially cycle models like what astrology and all these things actually is because again you step outside the anglosphere and you have a very different understanding of time and and, and the oldest continually practicing in cultures on earth it's place-based right and it's also something different so i don't know how much you know about the maya but their their day counting system every day every version of that day is the same day so it's like every wednesday is the one wednesday it's like time is stacked vertically and that plus the aboriginal notions of time being organized by place is you that wouldn't touch the sides of of like an aboriginal head what you just said about the, your experience in a 15 year difference in time and the kind of feeling of um stacked thing it's a story of place and i think that's one of the keys to unpacking synchronicity in these phenomena is what happens when we run it through a frankly i think more accurate time model right so like a cycle based or a place based one uh, and that that is fascinating to me like how how different places can be hyper thick and you can feel it and, and when i say we think of it feeling it across time right but you, the maya or certain aboriginal cultures wouldn't see it as feeling across time because you're in the place so you have access to that place's dreaming which is its kind of story vertically or stacked through time and i think there's i love this stuff because it's sort of like 
it's almost like running the UFO phenomena through a different piece of software, <laughs> like what spits out. And and that's why I'm so interested in anonymous cosmologies, I think. No, there's so many questions I did not ask you, which is, but that's a really, I might, I've this is actually being recorded. I might like just snip that little bit and drop it back in still. No, cool. Go for it. So um, Whitley Strieber, his cabin, I found out years later, was less, it's less than two miles away from that spot I was laying. Ah, I love it. And when Whitley talks about going into the forest, he said, I'd go into the forest and I'd follow this trail. And there was these foothills of these cliff systems. And I, that's where I would face my fears. That was, that was right there. That's so good. I love it. <laughs> so, I love it. But the thing that bothered me most about that story is the voice that said, they're pushing really hard tonight. That was my voice. I was saying it. But I was, you know, who was I talking about? Now, given your model, it was could have been myself or my ancestors or the star people or the star voice or however you, the, the star consciousness, you know. Some consciousness was interacting with me. It sure felt like it. I was being impelled to go to that spot. And, and I could not resist. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Once again, I need to thank Gordon for this wonderful conversation. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. <laughs>